Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 21, War of the Currents, Part 5, The Second Front, 1890 to 1892. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. I'm happy to report that my surgery went well and I'm recovering nicely, so I live to podcast another day. As we begin, I wanted to thank all those who joined our Tesla, The Life and Times Facebook page since last episode. Dominic Runfola, Miranda Peterson, Daniel Smith, Christopher Davis, Petra Pavelkova, Matu Suden Dube, Dean Jessup, Paul Robert A. Springer, Jeremy Reese, Robert Freer, and Peter Marku. And shouts out to Dominic Runfola, who used the recommend feature on Facebook to let his network know he's enjoying the show. Unbiased, true info, entertaining, perfect for commutes to work or just to relax. And Martin Copeland, too, who said, amazing podcast and ridiculously addictive. Thanks so much, fellas. And also a shout out to listener Bakirab, a fellow Canuck who left a five-star rating and review in iTunes titled, Critical, Well-Informed, Entertaining. Like others have said, not a fanboy podcast, says the review. This is a critical take on his life and relationships that exposes Tesla for all aspects of his personality, the revered and also the questionable. Very entertaining for all kinds of listeners, highly recommended. Very, very kind. Thank you so much. Again, really glad that people are enjoying the show. If you haven't had a chance to leave a rating or review, either on Facebook or iTunes or wherever you happen to get your podcasts, I hope you might take a minute to do so now. Each of these reviews and ratings helps the show become more easily findable in searches, and the more ratings and reviews a show has, the more likely someone who just stumbles upon it might actually take the chance and listen. This show is slowly marching up the Google results when you search for Nikola Tesla Podcast. Searching for just Tesla Podcast gets you a lot of shows about, I don't know, some car company. Anyway, my goal would be that someday we would be the number one organic Google result when you search for podcasts about Nikola Tesla. Your ratings and reviews are a big part of that, as is you telling friends who enjoy podcasts, hey, check out this show I like. Much like books, Nothing sells a podcast like word of mouth. Thanks for all your help. As I mentioned last time, we're wading back into the trenches of the War of the Currents this week, and we'll stay in the thick of battle for the next few episodes as we look at how the War of the Currents raged around the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, and then how it raged around the raging waters of Niagara Falls itself, as the war essentially came to an end with the harnessing of the falls and the triumph of AC power. Unlike the last series of episodes on the War of the Currents, however, Tesla will pop up occasionally over these next few shows. But today, we take a step back and check in on what Westinghouse and Edison have been up to while Tesla was on his speaking tour. And we'll see how the War of the Currents, a war of attrition in so many ways, whittled itself down from 15 combatants to just two. If you cast your mind back to the last time we talked about Westinghouse, way back in episode 17, you'll recall that he was having money troubles, 
Westinghouse had fronted his company more than a million dollars of his own money and had borrowed heavily, too. The Westinghouse company had been in a buying frenzy, as had Edison General Electric and Thomson Houston, as each firm competed to snap up more than a dozen or so smaller electric companies, most of them regional, and expand their corporate footprint. By mid-1890, the Westinghouse firm had $3 million in short-term liabilities, but only about $2.5 million in actual assets. So, as you may recall, when in November 1890 a major London brokerage house, Baring Brothers, the greatest banking house in all the world, went belly up, Westinghouse found himself and his company in trouble. Anticipating a run on the banks, Westinghouse's creditors called in their loans. The Westinghouse company was forced into receivership, and George Westinghouse fought for the next two years to save his company. You'll remember from episode 17 that, as a part of a Wall Street-led reorganization, Westinghouse was induced to ask Tesla to cancel his royalty agreement, which the obliging inventor, of course, did. When you think back to episode 16, and realize that the debut of the electric chair was in August 1890, meaning that the terrible press of AC's lethal power came at basically the same time as the financial struggles of Westinghouse and his company, well, Westinghouse needed a win, and he needed one quick. He found it in Colorado. As we discussed briefly in episode 18, on June 19, 1891, using a Westinghouse system, the first ever long-distance transmission of alternating current was made, by the Ames Hydroelectric Generating Plant near Telluride, Colorado. Telluride, once a leading gold mining town in the Rockies, had fallen on hard times due mainly to rising energy costs. The Gold King mine up in the mountains used heavy excavators that consumed enormous amounts of power, and to keep the boilers for the steam engines running at full tilt, the mining companies had already used up as fuel cheap available timber that grew at the mine's 12,000-foot elevation. Coal was a no-go, as there was no railroad access to the mine. And they call it a mine. A mine! The San Miguel River would have been a good source of power, except that it was 3,000 feet down the mountain and three miles away from the mine. Standard methods of transmitting water power, such as compressed air and belt drives, simply wouldn't work over such distances. But, as it happened, one of the major shareholders in the mine and his brother, who, as it turned out, was an electrical engineer, had been following developments back east in the War of the Currents and began to think that they had a perfect example of where electrical power could do what no other system of power could. Once they did the math, it was clear that a 220-volt direct current electric system, which relied on huge amounts of super-expensive copper, just wouldn't be economical. So, they called Westinghouse. During that long summer of 1890, when Westinghouse's thoughts were dominated by the imminent first use of the electric chair, the Westinghouse company delivered the equipment to the Ames site. Installed later that winter by a team of Westinghouse men, augmented with some engineering students recruited from Cornell University, the system consisted of two identical 100-horsepower Westinghouse single-phase alternators, the largest the company made at the time. One was set up in a generator house, initially just a wooden shed, where the Howard Fork and Lake Fork streams joined to form the San Miguel River. Used as a generator, it produced 3,000-volt, 133-hertz single-phase AC. 
It was driven by a six-foot water wheel under a 320-foot head of water carried in a two-foot diameter steel pipe supplied by the streams, as well as natural reservoirs uphill from the plant. The electricity was transmitted 2.6 miles, or just over 4 kilometers, up the mountain to the mine via two bare copper wires, which must have really sucked for any bird who tried to land on them, and these wires were mounted on telegraph poles. Total wire costs were about $700, or roughly 1% of the cost for an Edison-style direct current line. At the mine, the second 100-horsepower Westinghouse alternator was installed in the role of a synchronous AC motor to drive the machinery. It was here that a small, single-phase induction motor based on Tesla's patents, the ones that Westinghouse had licensed from the inventor, was installed as a starter motor to spin the larger alternator up and synchronize the speed of the generator. This system, as we mentioned, became operational on the 19th of June, 1891, and ran continuously for the first 30 days. The entire plant required 15 to 20 attendants for its operation. As the instruments and controls were rudimentary, workers had to take special care. For example, power was connected by closing simple knife switches, and the system could only be shut down by a worker essentially pulling a giant plug out of a giant socket, a trick which would often result in six to eight foot arcs of high voltage electricity. Though this transmission of AC would be surpassed, dwarfed really, oh my. by the incredibly successful Laufen Frankfurt transmission two months later, in which AC power was sent 112 miles, or over 40 times the distance of the Telluride transmission, this for the moment world record setting distance for AC transmission was a huge boon for Westinghouse at a time when one was badly needed. The Telluride transmission was powerful proof of Westinghouse's AC system. If it could send power over a remote section of the Rockies, it could do so almost anywhere. Moreover, the affordability and durability of the Westinghouse system was on display for everyone to see. Line costs 1% of the DC system, you say? Generate power where it's easiest to do so and then transmit it to where it's needed? Hmm. As one engineer put it, it was as though every town now stood, quote, on an inexhaustible field of smokeless, dustless coal. But the hits for poor George Westinghouse just kept on coming. Even as Westinghouse struggled to find funding and maintain control of his company, even as the electric chair claimed its first victim, to top it all off came the end of a much less well-known struggle in the early electrical industry, the so-called Seven Years Incandescent Light Bulb War doesn't really roll off the tongue like War of the Currents, does it? This second front of sorts in the War of the Currents went back, well, seven years, all the way back to 1884, not long after Edison had introduced the first practical functioning light bulb. Once Edison light bulbs were available, it wasn't long before knockoffs infringing on Edison patents began flooding the market. Needless to say, the ever-litigious Edison rightly launched a number of lawsuits against infringers to protect his interests, both commercial and intellectual. The suits ground slowly through the wheels of justice until 1889, when Thomas Edison triumphed in Pittsburgh Circuit Court with a judge declaring that Edison alone had created the practical, functioning light bulb based on, quote, the novel and original long-burning, high-resistance filament set in an exhausted glass globe. Everyone else who made such light bulbs was therefore a patent infringer and owed the Edison Company compensatory damages. 
With estimates of illegal patent infringing bulbs currently in use in the United States in 1889 running as high as 50%, you can imagine how this ruling set off a panic amongst small manufacturers. The Edison people had long promised that when they won their case, they intended to charge damages of, quote, $25 for each lamp in an original installation and $2.50 for each renewable lamp and would cut off all access to Edison light bulbs except to authorized licensees. It mattered very little that Edison's patents would run out in a few years. They were due to expire in 1894, as Edison's harsh retaliations against infringers would put them out of business right away in 1889. Westinghouse and the U.S. Electric Lighting Company immediately appealed the decision, determined to delay the process and run out the clock. But it wasn't to be. On Tuesday, July 14, 1891, a federal judge, the improbably named William Wallace, That can't be William Wallace. I'm prettier than this man. upheld the earlier decision, renewing the sense of panic. Westinghouse again planned an appeal, but Judge Wallace was reportedly appeal-proof. The next day, the New York Times reported that the Edison team expected about $2 million a year in new royalties to pour in from all those infringing manufacturers. The panic deepened. Within days of the ruling, the Electrical Engineer magazine rushed out an extra edition that reprinted the decision in full. 10,000 copies sold out immediately. Editor T. Comerford Martin obviously hoped to calm the panicked electricians and tried to set a soothing tone in a follow-up editorial on the Edison lamp. As to the attitude of the Edison General Electric Company, we can only hope and believe that the corporation will exercise its victory with the moderation which is always the best proof of the right to power. Martin, ever the friend and champion of Tesla, pointed out the role that advancing technology would play. Thanks to his insider knowledge of the situation in Tesla's lab, prior even to Tesla's grand speech at the AIEE, Martin hinted at the world to come. Mr. Tesla gave us a motor without a commutator, and it would be strangely in keeping if he gave us now a lamp without a filament. But then, literally the next day after his loss in the light bulb decision, Westinghouse made most of his other problems go away. For the better part of eight months, Westinghouse had needed a lot of money to save his company, and he was having trouble finding it. Naturally, with the smell of blood in the water, sharks began to circle. The unfortunately named Charles Coffin head of Thompson Houston, tried a number of times to woo Westinghouse into a merger with his company. Westinghouse, whatever straits he was in, was having none of it. Mr. Coffin has a very swelled head, he rather bluntly once told a reporter. He talks about making his company bigger than the Standard Oil Company. Coffin will make a man about ten different propositions in ten minutes. I have had many interviews with him. I suppose you know how he takes people into his inside room and then locks the door on them so as not to be interrupted. At one of our interviews, I think it was in New York, he asked me if I would be willing to go into any electrical combination of which I was not the head. I said most emphatically that I would not go into any electrical combination of which I was to be head, nor of which he was to be head. He told me how he ran his stock down and deprived both Thompson and Houston of the benefits of an increased stock issue. I said to Coffin, You tell me how you treated Thompson and Houston, why should I trust you after what you tell me? At another time, Coffin proposed that we should form a combination so that whatever occurred, whether the companies were successful or unsuccessful, 
We should make money under any circumstances. I said to Coffin that I was not in the habit of robbing my stockholders. There was no reply. By early 1891, there were rumors that a group of Boston-area investors were gathering enough Westinghouse stock to take control of the company. Westinghouse himself dismissed these rumors, but surely had to be worried something like that might happen. Indeed, in March, Westinghouse found both himself and his board suddenly ousted from one of his other companies, Union Switch and Signal. It was only a temporary setback, he eventually regained control of the company, but it was yet another reminder of how tenuous his position had become. A friend of mine, who is a high-powered corporate executive, describes the succeed-or-else stakes of her job as having reached the, quote, Game of Thrones stage of her career. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win, or you die. There is no middle ground. And that's certainly where Westinghouse was. After a series of postponements, on May 4th, the annual stockholder meeting was convened in Pittsburgh at the Westinghouse building. Prior to the meeting, each stockholder received a written brief that confirmed a rumor most had heard. There was a group of investors proposing to reorganize and recapitalize the Westinghouse Electric Company and its associated businesses. I won't bore you with the intricate details of the financial reorganization of Westinghouse Electric, because, well, mainly because I don't really understand them. As far as I'm concerned, all this highly complex inside baseball Wall Street financial maneuvering stuff, whether in the Gilded Age or in our own, is so complicated simply to hide the fact that it's all fundamentally crooked in one way or another. The gist of what happened was that in order to raise the kind of capital needed to save his company, Westinghouse needed his stockholders to essentially cash in a sizable percentage of their stock and then give the money to the company as a bailout. The largest shareholders, those holding $7 million worth of the company's total $10 million share value, were asked to sacrifice 40% of their stock. Not your typical haircut. The cash generated from this wheeling and dealing would be used to pay off debt and finance further expansion and acquisition. Acquisitions included buying outright two companies that Westinghouse already held controlling interests in, U.S. Electric Lighting and Consolidated Electric Light. Westinghouse had acquired these companies largely for their incandescent light bulb patents, crucial weapons in the ongoing patent wars. Though it took a few months to finalize, the day after the defeat over light bulb patents in the courtroom, Westinghouse announced what most had assumed impossible. His stockholders had agreed to surrender the shares and would pay off the company's debts. What's more, not only would a new high-powered board of financiers be installed to oversee the reorganized, properly financed Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company, but George Westinghouse would continue to head that company. Years later, Westinghouse's lawyer, Paul D. Cravath, still marveled at what Westinghouse had pulled off. In at least two great financial crises, when the financiers had given up the task as hopeless, Mr. Westinghouse, by his faith, by his untiring energy, and by the exercise of a power to influence men that I have never seen equaled, was able to weather the financial storm, raise enormous sums of money, and restore his enterprises to a sound financial position when his critics and most of his friends were certain that he was facing a crushing defeat. The same issue of Electrical Engineer that detailed Edison's light bulb victory also congratulated Westinghouse on pulling his company out of the fire. 
We are ourselves inclined to look upon the Westinghouse Company as now one of the most formidable in the field, and as being far more likely today to get business and do it profitably than it was in the time of its inflation and extravagance. Now, it's uncharitable of me, but I can't help but picture Edison at this moment perched like the Grinch high above Whoville, drumming his fingers in anger at the sounds of joy from below. It should have been a moment of great celebration for Edison. His long-sought-after patent victory had been affirmed by not one but two courts, and money would surely start rolling in from all those patent infringers. Except that his rival Westinghouse had survived, and Edison himself was deep in the grip of his own money troubles. Only a few years earlier, in 1889, Henry Villard, former Civil War correspondent, the Union Pacific builder who had driven in the Golden Spike, U.S. representative for German banks, and longtime Edison investor, reorganized the Edison Electric Light Company and its various manufacturing entities into Edison General Electric, with Edison's blessing, of course. Investors more than doubled their money. Edison himself walked away from the deal with $1.75 million in stock and cash, nearly $48 million U.S. today. See what I mean about all this high finance stuff seeming like witchcraft? Wrote Edison gratefully to Villard, I have been under a desperate strain for money for 22 years, and when I sold out, one of the great inducements was the sum of cash received, so as to free my mind from financial stress and thus enable me to go ahead in the technical field. Edison General Electric was now a major American corporation, employing 3,000 people in its three main shops and bringing in revenues of $7 million a year, with profits of almost 700000 During this reorganization, Villard also sold $4 million in new Edison GE stock, mostly to his German-backed North American company, and to J.P. Morgan, one of the great financiers of the era who will continue to figure from time to time in our story going forward. But, from this high point, a fall. Within a year, Edison was writing angry letters to Villard, complaining that the previous summer's reorganization maybe wasn't such a great idea. Before, Edison wrote, he had, quote, an income of $250,000 per year, from which I paid easily my laboratory expenses. This income by the consolidation was reduced to 85000 which is insufficient to run the laboratory. I am placed in such a position that my active connection with the lighting business costs half my time, and has produced absolute discouragement. Edison's stock dropped from $120 a share to $90. By mid-December of 1891, the New York Times was reporting rumors that Henry Villard's days as president of Edison General Electric were numbered. The rumors would be denied, only to come to life again, and this cycle kept repeating. Increasingly, it looked like the Edison company had stopped innovating in electricity and was being left behind. Not only were court fights about patents and marketing battles against such competitors as Brush Electric, Consolidated Electric, Sawyer Mann, Swan Incandescent, Thompson-Houston, United States Electric, and the Westinghouse Corporation itself, draining Edison General Electric coffers, but the DC system remained stubbornly expensive and inefficient. One of Edison's own mathematicians had calculated as far back as 1879 that to light 8,640 lamps for only nine city blocks, the cost would be $200,000, a bit over 5 million U.S. dollars today, 
just for the over 800,000 pounds of copper required per system. Even when Edison managed to cut the need for copper down by almost 90%, the costs were still staggering, especially when you consider that DC power stations could never reach beyond a radius of one or two miles. Villard wrote to Edison about AC breakthroughs in Europe, suggesting that the company should at least look into developing an alternating current system as a complement to its DC offerings. Edison wrote back, The use of alternating current instead of direct current is unworthy of practical men. Practical men, however, were just the sort of people who saw AC's potential. And Edison's opinions didn't carry the weight they once did. Increasingly, even within his own company, Edison's objections seemed to be little more than the stubbornness of a cranky old-timer resistant to change, the sort of figure that Edison himself had always hated as a young experimenter. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Edison also refused to hear Villard's talk, which grew more and more frequent all the time, about a formal merger with some of Edison's patent-stealing rivals, such as Coffin's Thompson Houston Company. Indeed, Edison's lawyer released a statement after the lightbulb patent case was won, saying, quote, The prospect of consolidation is far more remote than ever, as the company would have nothing to gain and everything to lose by such an operation. Except, well, that wasn't true. Like, at all. Edison General Electric needed money. And in a big bad way. Many fledgling power companies had purchased Edison equipment in exchange for stock, but hadn't yet turned a profit, meaning no dividends for the Edison company. And installment payments on the machinery were only trickling in. Cash was tight. So Edison General Electric made cuts up and down the organization, some of which were ruthless. For example, on a winter morning in January 1892, 150 young women working in the fiber shop of an Edison factory in Harrison, New Jersey, were handed a terse note at the end of their shift. This department is closed. In this age before minimum wages or workers' rights protections, these women, who earned 8 to $10 a week, were simply replaced overnight by a group of Polish immigrants at half the wage. But it wasn't enough. In the wake of the Bearings collapse, Villard's German-funded North American bank, source of much of Edison GE's capital, also failed. Villard grew desperate. So, about the same time that Westinghouse began seeking Wall Street money, Villard began secret merger negotiations with Charles Coffin, the former shoe salesman who had forged Thompson Houston into a major electrical power, but who, unlike Edison, was focused on the promise of AC power. A merger of the two competing firms would end the draining and costly patent wars. Sixty lawsuits were making their way through various courts, and allow Edison General Electric access to Thompson Houston's well-developed AC lighting system. Edison salesmen had been begging for an AC system for ages. And Thompson Houston would gain rights to use the Edison light bulb patents now that the patent infringement suit made other firms wary of using it. On February 5, 1892, Alfred O. Tate, who had been Edison's personal secretary for more than a decade, was at his desk in the Edison building at 16 Broad Street in Manhattan when his friend, Wall Street journalist Herbert Sinclair, walked in. Tate relates what happened in his memoir. Alf, he said as he seated himself, do you know that the Edison General Electric and Thompson Houston are going to amalgamate? Herbie, I replied, that's an old yarn that was buried long ago. 
Where did you resurrect it? Now listen to me, he answered. I know what I'm talking about. Charlie Coffin and Villard are in Morgan's office right now, and we are all waiting at Henry Clue's office for the story. We have been told that we can break it after three o'clock. Tate jumped up and said he had to leave immediately to catch the ferry to New Jersey. I'll have to go right out to see Edison. He knows nothing about this. Tate says in his memoir, quote, I have always regretted the abruptness with which I broke the news to Edison, but I'm not sure that a milder manner and less precipitate delivery would have cushioned the shock. I never before had seen him change color. His complexion naturally was pale, a clear, healthy paleness, but following my announcement it turned as white as his collar. Send for Samuel Insull, was all he said as he left me standing in his library. Insull, his treasurer, was sent for. What passed between them I do not know. Edison never again made any reference to the subject. Edison was furious. He had already denounced Thompson Houston for, quote, having boldly appropriated and infringed every patent we use. So how could they now join forces? But Edison only held about 10% of the shares in his company after the reorganization, so there was little he could do to stop such a merger. Edison's Wall Street backers pressed for the merger, understanding that the electricity business was becoming a regional monopoly controlled by a handful of large players. Most cities already had a single gas company and telephone firm. Financiers liked the idea that the electricity market was organizing itself along similarly profitable lines. Edison, however, was having none of it. If you make the coalition with Thompson-Houston, my usefulness as an inventor is gone, Edison wrote in an angry letter to Villard. My services wouldn't be worth a penny. I can only invent under powerful incentives. No competition means no invention. It's the same with the men I have around me. It's not the money they want, but a chance for their ambition to grow. But for all Villard and Coffin's negotiations, in actuality, nothing could happen without the blessing of John Pierpoint Morgan, J.P. Morgan, who in the previous decade had become one of the most powerful financiers on Wall Street. Charles Coffin had boasted to the investment bankers pushing the merger with the Edison Company that Thompson Houston was, quote, beating the stuffing out of Edison all along the line. Business was booming for both companies, but as I mentioned earlier, Edison General Electric was sitting on $4 million pile of local electric stocks, unable to convert these paper holdings into cash. Thompson Houston had been wiser about such deals, and so didn't have this problem. And, of course, there was always the lure of the Edison light bulb patent to incentivize a merger. But Coffin began to wonder why Thompson Houston, the more profitable company, should sell out to their weaker rival. One Thompson Houston executive went so far as to flat out tell Morgan's representatives, quote, We don't think much of the way the Edison company has been managed. So Morgan had his people look into it. And the Thompson Houston people were right. Thanks to Coffin's business savvy, Thompson Houston produced twice the profit of Edison General Electric, despite a smaller market share. So, with that, Morgan got on board with the idea that the better managers, those of the Thompson-Houston company, ought to buy out Edison General Electric, not the other way around. On April 15, 1892, the deal was made. Edison General Electric and Thompson-Houston combined to form a new company known thereafter as the General Electric Company.
Capitalized at $50 million, in 1892 it was the nation's second largest industrial merger. It was more a takeover than a merger, though. Though Edison was given a token seat on the company's board of directors, Thompson Houston executives dominated the new company up and down, and GE's first president was Charles Coffin, late of Thompson Houston. Edison stock was converted at a rate of one to one, Thompson Houston stock at the rate of three shares for five new shares. While this sounds generous, in reality it meant that, just as J.P. Morgan had wanted, the smaller, lesser known company, Thompson Houston, was taking over the great name of the electrical field. Edison shareholders now controlled only about $15 million in the new company, compared with the $18 million controlled by the Thompson Houston shareholders. The remaining $17 million went into the company treasury. Remember that number, it'll be important in a minute. That his name was dropped from the new company entirely stung Edison. He learned of the company's new name, not from Morgan or Coffin directly, and not even by a telegram or a phone call. Instead, it fell to Edison's secretary, Alfred Tate, to break the news to him. Something had died in Edison's heart, said Tate. He had a deep-seated, enduring pride in his name, and this name had been violated, torn from the title of the great industry created by his genius through the years of planning and unremitting toil. Edison had been, in the vocabulary of the times, morganized. The New York Daily Tribune reported two weeks later that, quote, Edison was so disgusted with the turn of affairs he had proposed to withdraw entirely. He feels much aggrieved over what he considers the mismanagement of the company and the sacrifice of his interests. This was, of course, completely true. But Edison hated to look weak, so the very day that story appeared, he adopted his usual cocky public face and spoke to reporters. Not wanting the world or his enemies to know that his company had been sold out from under him, Edison explained that he was already on to bigger and better things. I cannot waste my time over electric lighting matters, for they are old. I ceased to worry over those things ten years ago, and I have a lot more new material on which to work. Electric lights are too old for me. I simply wish to get as large dividends as possible from such stock as I hold. I'm not businessman enough to spend my time at the end of the concern. I think I was the first to urge the consolidation. He also insisted that the new company, which would dominate three-quarters of the electric market, was neither a trust nor a monopoly. P. Comerford Martin wrote an editorial for the Electrical Engineer magazine after the announcement titled, Mr. Edison's Mistake. He laid the blame for Edison General Electric's demise squarely on, quote, the attitude taken and persistently held by Mr. Edison toward alternating current distribution. He could see no merit in that system, but upon its advent, its possibilities were promptly perceived by others. Since its introduction for long-distance service six years ago, it has practically driven the direct current system from the field of much central station business. Mr. Edison set his face against it as a flint from the first, and has sought on every possible occasion to discredit it through the weight in the community of his justly great name. But the tide would not turn back at his frown. All of this was true. But it was also true that deep down, Edison was tired of big business and how far away his success had taken him from his life as an inventor. The lighting business in particular had him down. As far back as 1890, Edison wrote to Villard, quote, 
I feel that it is about time to retire from the lighting business and devote myself to things more pleasant, where the strain and worry is not so great. Edison wanted to turn his mind to improving his phonograph and developing his talking picture kinescope. And, despite his obstinacy, even Edison had a sense at last that the world of electricity was passing him by. In the fall of 1892, after the seven years' incandescent light bulb war came to its end, Alfred O. Tate recounts finding Edison standing alone at his big roll-top desk. Asking a question about something electrical, Edison answered, Tate, if you want to know anything about electricity, go ask Kennelly. He knows far more about it than I do. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that I never did know anything about it. I'm going to do something now so different and so much bigger than anything I've ever done before that people will forget that my name ever was connected with anything electrical. Did Edison ever manage this feat? Well, let me ask you this. Who invented the light bulb? Was it this fate and its attendant bitterness that awaited Westinghouse too? Though he had secured his funding, nevertheless the electrical engineer in February 1892 reported, quote, It seems quite reasonable to expect, as many do, and as rumor has it, that absorption of the Westinghouse Company into the General Electric Corporation will soon follow. The provision of $17 million of stock, $6 million of which is in preferred shares, remaining to the Treasury after taking up the Edison and Thompson-Houston stocks, is thought by many to imply the use of a considerable portion of it in taking over the Westinghouse Company when convenient, but no information of such a plan has been made public. When convenient. I bet George Westinghouse could hear the distant strains of the Game of Thrones theme song as he read those words. His people had yet to get the Tesla AC system working, but most believed he would. With General Electric now controlling three-quarters of the nation's electrical business, they would want those Tesla AC patents. And J.P. Morgan, now a major stockholder in GE, only believed in one kind of business, the monopoly. Westinghouse needed to do something grand, something bold, something to get his name and his technology out there. He saw his chance in Chicago, and the promise of the White City of 1893. Next time, we'll watch as Westinghouse brazenly underbids GE by $1 million to win the contract to provide electric light and power to the 1893 Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair that would transform the United States. And he did it all without a working AC system, without the ability to use Edison-style light bulbs, and with only a year to fulfill his contract, or fall spectacularly on his face for all the nation to see. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word, recommend the show to a friend, share links to the latest episodes on your social media. It all really does help. Please take just a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to the show, leave us a rating and review like the ones I mentioned at the top. As reviews come in, I'll be sure to shout out a thank you to you. Past episodes can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page. And you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz.